Welcome to Surgical Society's Day in the Life podcast. I am Poppy. I'm Amisha. And we're going to take you through a day in the life of numerous healthcare workers. We hope to give you an idea of what a career in healthcare is like from a range of perspectives. And we'll give you tips on applying to medicine, discuss important topics and hopefully inspire you to pursue a career in medicine. Hi guys, welcome to another episode of A Day in the Life. Uh, today we have Dr. Sony uh, from the Sony Clinic, who has been a doctor in both America and the NHS. And um, so Dr. Sony, it's a great um, pleasure to have you today. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm really honoured to be featured on the UCL podcast. Um, so, you know, my name is Dr. Ash Sony. I'm a plastic and reconstructive surgeon. Um, I'm actually from the UK, kind of grew up um, in Surrey, uh, went to medical school at Imperial College in London, and then ended up um, jumping ship and really going over to the States to do all of my plastic surgery training. So I started off at Cornell in New York City doing a research fellowship, uh, then went over to Johns Hopkins to do general surgery, and then the West Coast in Seattle to finish up my plastic surgery training. I then moved back to the UK about a year and a half ago um, and did a fellowship, a one and a half year fellowship at the Royal Marsden Hospital in microvascular and oncoplastic surgery. And um, just recently in the last few months have set up my own private practice called the Sony Clinic. So what does a day in your life right now look like? Yeah, you know, I've got, I've kind of got like two versions of day in the life right now, because I'm, I'm balancing both NHS and private. So if we start with my NHS job, you know, a typical day would really, you know, I normally wake up around 5.45, 5.30, 5.45, um, and kind of get to the hospital really by about 7am. Um, the Royal Marsden has two hospitals, one in uh, London and one in um, Sutton down in Surrey. So I'm based down pr- predominantly at the one in Surrey at the moment. Um, where we're doing a lot of like the breast cancer, skin cancer reconstruction. So day would really be getting in around seven-ish, meeting my, my junior um, trainee who works with me. Um, and then we, we essentially round on the patients who, who we need to see before surgery. We mark the patients um, and kind of go over the consent forms and do all the formal discussion with the patient that, and all, all patients that we have for the day. Um, Often for a breast cancer reconstruction, that's a full day. That's one surgery that normally lasts around, you know, anywhere between, you know, seven to 12 hours, depending on how complex the case. Um, And normally for those cases, that's, you know, after breast cancer and after mastectomies. So we end up then doing essentially what are called free flap um, tissue transfers Mm. or taking tissue from one part of your body to reconstruct the breast after a mastectomy. So those surgeries are quite long, they're complex, they're under the microscope. There's a lot of pieces to, to, to getting that right. So it takes a full day. Um, and, and then typically like we're, I'm really there until our surgeries are done. And so it just depends. Sometimes we can be, be, be done at 3, 3 p.m., 4 p.m. And other days we can be done at like 7, 8, 9 p.m. just depending on, on what the surgeries are. So it's pretty variable. Um, and I would say that's, that's kind of typical. And then I, I, I go back in, after doing cases like that, I go back in three hours later to check um, to check the patient. So I normally go back to the hospital around 8, 9 p.m. Um, I check on the patient, uh, make sure that everything's going well. Um, you know, we have to listen to like Doppler signals of vessels in the tissue that we just transplanted up in the chest. Um, and because of that, obviously, you're kind of the first 24 hours are the most critical for those kind of patients. So um, 
you know, it's good to to personally lay eyes on on those patients. So I go back in and then and then hopefully fingers crossed if everything goes well, which which you know it, it typically does. Um, I can go home then and get home by around 10 p.m. Um, and that's kind of like my typical day. There are days um, that we also do like skin cancer reconstructions where we have like five, six surgeries in one day. They're busy days, but fun. You know, it gives a lot of variety um, and a lot of uh, a lot of kind of diversity in terms of pathology and different areas of the body and things. So that's kind of my NHS day. Um, and then I do private on the weekends. So my private practice is, is based in Surrey and Berkshire. Um, I'm doing uh, non-surgical and surgical aesthetic procedures. So typically for that, I would normally wake up around six. I'd normally, I have a bit of a later start in my own clinic because people in the, you know, in the suburbs, especially on the weekends, don't want to really get to your clinic before nine. Um, so I get there a bit earlier. I set everything up for the patients ahead for that day. You know, I've already read the notes the night before and all the patients I'm going to see that day. And then I, I, I like, because it's my own practice, I can book as efficiently as possible. So I know exactly how long I give a lot of time for patients. I really do. Um, I don't like patients to ever feel rushed. So I'd rather see less patients in a day than more. Um, so I, my consultations are longer and, um, and my procedures, I, I just set out enough time where we can go over the consent. We can get photos, we can go over everything, you know, um, and I have certain techniques in my clinic to kind of minimize pain and make it comfortable for patients. So I really take my time over that with even as simple as Botox and fillers. There's a lot of finesse to these, these procedures. And so, um, so yeah, and then I, I really just go until the end of the day on the weekends until um, as late as my last patient is. Um, uh, sometimes it can be kind of seven, eight. My last, my last appointment is at 7 p.m. Um, so it just depends. So yeah, I'm, um, obviously it's a bit more flexible at the moment with lockdown and I've had to shut my clinic, which I made the decision to. So my days, um, I'm not doing the seven day a week that I normally am, but that'll pick up again. So you talked about like owning your own practice. Like that's kind of the cross between like business and medicine. Mm -hmm. And how do you handle that cross between them? Because I don't think a lot of doctors have that experience to be both a business person and a doctor. Is that a diff? like, was it, like difficult to transition into that or was it quite natural and easy yeah you know it th there's a lot to learn it is a steep learning curve I think I I really th had thought for the last couple of years that this is what I wanted to do that I did want to set up my own entity um there's certain things I think if you're a certain type of person I'm I, I like to be very efficient at work um I love you know the autonomy and having you know the, the kind of your own patients and really being able to connect with them I think the NHS, there's a limit to that of how much you can be efficient. You have to wait on other people and you have to, you know, there's the bureaucracies that come with, with a government hospital. Whereas for my own clinic, I can really set it up how I want. And I think that's why I really went down the road of setting up my own practice. Um, but it was a lot of work. You know, I put in endless hours, um, you know, to get to get it off the ground, because I think you have to learn so much about finances. You have to have a good accountant. You have to have good legal advice you know, you have to make sure that your consent forms and all your terms of business and all these things that come with it that we have never really been taught about in med school or afterwards. Yeah. So there, there really is a lot of learning. Um, I'm lucky I have, you know, a, a support, you know, I've got brothers who are lawyers, you know, my, my dad's in finance. So there's, there's people I can ask for, for, for advice, but you have to do the work, you know, you have to do a lot of work for it. And especially if you don't want to pay too much money for like marketing and websites and, and social media, then 
you're really taking on a lot yourself. Um, so, and at the beginning, you don't want, you want your cost to be minimal um, because, you know, obviously you're, you're just starting and you don't want to pump in, you know, you can, you can pay people thousands a month for PR and marketing and, you know, to, to have that kind of capital at the beginning is difficult unless you've been established for years. So there's been a, there's been a lot to learn um, and things are continually evolving and I've continually got ideas that I'm, I'm implementing. So I think, you know, so yes, you're right. It, it is, it is not something that we're taught about. It's something that you have to, you know, you have to kind of learn, but I think, you know, I, I like, I've got, I come from a family of people um, who, who have been in business and, you know, and, and it's not hard. I mean, we can all do it. I think it's just like putting our minds, if you, if you really want to execute something and you really have a goal, I, I don't think there should be anything that can stop you from doing it. Yeah, I think a lot of doctors or like medical students feel like they're restricted and what they can do. And at the end of medical school, it's just like being a doctor. And yeah. I don't think that's true. Like, I think there's a lot of um, options and a lot of avenues you can go down. I definitely, I definitely think so. And, there, and there's a reason why a lot of people don't actually do this. You know, like, I mean, there's a lot of plastic surgeons who I know, you know, and I've worked with and consultants in London, things who actually don't always set up their own entity. They'd, they'd rather be part of a group because it's obviously it's less, it's less risk, it's less stress, it's less hassle. You don't have to deal with so many issues that come your way, especially when you have your own business. But, you know, sometimes if you, you know, like I said, you know, it's been something that's been a goal of mine for a, for a long time. And I think I, I was willing, I was prepared to take on that, that additional risk and, and the stress that comes with having your own business. Because I think for me and for my goals, the long-term reward is, is, is bigger. Um, so your pathway into medicine is particularly interesting and also very alternative to a lot of people's kind of ideas of the route into medicine. Um, how did you go about deciding that's the route you wanted to go down or that's how you wanted to reach um, becoming a doctor in the end? And was there anything you did in, in the lead up to that, like how you went about preparing for something which obviously it's not like all your peers are kind of preparing for the exact same thing. It's a very, um, yeah, just how you went about doing that. Yeah. You know, I had thought pretty early on in medical school, but I would really thought about America quite early on. Um, I think that stemmed for a couple of reasons. You know, firstly, I'd been out to America quite a bit as a kid. I didn't really, I didn't know anything about the medical system in America at that time, but I think when I got to medical school, um, pretty early on, actually, in my third year, third, fourth year, my brother actually moved out. He did law in London at LSC and went over to California. And I think then I had like an immediate family member who had gone over. Um, I started to think about it a bit more seriously. And I went over, I used to do like, you know, I did some experiences in my summer. I would just go there, fly out there for like three, four weeks. I'd spend a month at a hospital or, you know, with, with, a, with a particular doctor, like shadowing them and and they let me scrub in and do all, all these things. And I was like, wow, this is pretty, it's pretty amazing. And I think the more experiences that I got, the more I realized that the, even the junior trainees there had a lot of autonomy and independence where I never saw that in medical school in London. You know, like it was hard enough as a medical student to even be, to even scrub in as, you know, like, and, and these med students in, in even medical students in, in America were, were suturing and, and doing things. And I was like, wow, this is, this is unbelievable. So I saw the junior trainees getting a lot of experience. And I think, you know, for me, it was, it was also like the challenge was exciting. I think I was at that time in my life where, you know, you're in your kind of early twenties and, you know, nothing can stop you. And if you have some, a goal, then you're like, 
I can do this. And this is the time to do it. If, if you're not going to do it, you're never going to do it. So I think I started to think about it more seriously. And so, yeah, I started to think about the US Assemblies towards the fourth, fifth year of med school. But then you start getting towards the finals, which as you guys, as you guys know, like finals in London is no joke. In fact, in any, you know, good, you know, good medical school. So I, I did, decided, I consciously made the decision to, you know, go 100% finals, get through that at Imperial. And then when I graduated, I basically sat all the US MLEs back to back in, in, in six months, um, which, which is not also the way that a lot of people do it because the step one is all the basic science foundation stuff that we learn in first year and second year. So I had to go back and relearn all the stuff about transcription, translation, like all the stuff that I didn't remember. Um, and so, but, but I think that the goal, the goal really was just to make sure I got through medical school well, and then could devote like 100% of my time. So I, I, I didn't end up, you know, I, I applied for the deaneries in the UK, but didn't end up ranking until I pulled out because I basically thought, you know what, this is the time to do it. And if I don't do it now I, and I get into the UK system, even for a couple of years, it's going to be hard then to, to make the switch. So I'd rather try now. I gave myself, in my mind, I gave myself two years to do it. And if I didn't match within two years, then I would have come back to the UK. Yeah. And how did you find, so I think the stereotype is that in America, the system although it allows you more experiences, it's like a lot more work. You do a lot more hours and it's a lot more intense um, as a graduate. And how did you, like, did you find those differences and what were like the key differences? Because um, obviously you've done a residency here now as well. Yeah, you know, it's a good, it's a good, it's a good question. I, when I first w went out there, I knew it was going to be a lot tougher, but I didn't, no to the to what extreme um i don't think i really appreciated until i started quite honestly i i never took the job in the uk and i'm glad i didn't because i didn't want to see what what the nhs was like and then going to america i think that would have been a lot harder for me um i was almost like pretending as though i don't remember what i saw in medical school and just went to america and 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 whatever was thrown at me i would i would i would kind of take um, but but it was it was it was pretty intense. I mean, when I started at Johns Hopkins to do general surgery, you know, I was I remember my first week, and I would wake up at two forty five a.m. I would have to be in the hospital at three thirty. I would have to get all the numbers for my senior residents, my senior trainees, um, and we had to round on like 15, 20 patients where I was presenting on every single patient on ward rounds. The rounds would start around four. 4.30 because we had conference at 6 a.m. So it was, and it was just like, you were thrown in. And then I wouldn't get home until 10 p.m. every night. I mean, I was pulling, I think in my first, well, actually to most my whole residency, I probably pulled about 100 to 110 hours a week, every week. Um, and then you do, and then you do on calls where you're, you know, especially because I was at a huge trauma center in Seattle where we covered like the whole of Northwest of America. So for face and hand trauma and plastics, I was doing, you know, you would do 72 hours straight on call, sometimes 100 hours on a weekend where you would be operating day and night for four days and nights. And then your regular Monday would be a regular day. So it wasn't like I could go home and sleep after 100 hours of being up and operating. I would have to then do like a 12 hour reconstructive surgery on a Monday. Um, it, it was mad. I, I'd never like experienced anything like it. Um, and you know what, I think we'll touch on some of the burnout 
question you know we, we'll touch on that topic later but it's a lot to put yourself through for 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 many years you know yeah definitely um so let's talk about med school and getting into med school which is probably one of the first steps you had to take how was that for you was that difficult um yeah just how was that experience yeah you know I think it's always challenging getting into medical school especially if you want to go to a, a reptile medical school it's not easy and the UK you know it's getting it's only getting tougher and tougher over the years um I'm sure it was tougher for you for you guys than it was even for me you know like but, but at the time, just to, to think of like places like Imperial or, you know, UCL or any of these really good universities, I think it was, you know, it's definitely challenging. Um, so, you know, I just made sure that I had the experience that I needed um, on my application. I remember um, working really hard for my A-levels to get the grades that we needed to get. I mean, you know, I think it was, um, there was, there was a lot to it. And I remember the, even preparing for the interviews, you know, like the ethical questions and like all the different things that they could ask and, the uncertainties and really it was like the first time probably for all of us that we've undergone such formal such a formal interview process that um to, to that to that degree and so um I remember being you know um nervous but but like you know the the excitement as well that you could potentially one day kind of get into medicine I think what got me into medicine in the first place was some experiences that I'd done in school um and I'd worked with children with disabilities and um, and a few other co- a few other experiences in hospitals where I thought, you know what, like I don't want to just sit at a desk and, and and make make a ton of money, and that was my priority right at the time. I was like, I don't, I'm not super interested in in you know considering finance or law or some of the other things that I was thinking about at the time. I think it was more, you know, I really wanted to do something that would that would give me some sort of reward and satisfaction at the end of the day. So that was kind of like my my journey in. Do you think? Um in terms of what medical school you went to so you went to imperial we go to ucl and i'd say that although it doesn't matter what med school you go to i'd say that in london there are a lot of opportunities to do things in med school that kind of like widen your like scope of what you just get more experience so you kind of know what direction you want to go in more in terms of medicine like how do you feel about that do you think it matters you know i you know i do i I think really the most important thing is picking a program that fits your personality and your characteristics. I think if you're the type of person who can adapt well to a big city like London, you know, I know some of the courses when we were, especially at the time when I was applying, it was like the problem-based learning versus the traditional lecture-based learning. And for me, I knew I was like more of a traditional person than like a completely problem-based learning course. And I remember those were the things that were going through my mind at that time. seems like forever ago now. Um, uh, you can tell by my grey hairs, but I, I think it's more important that you find somewhere that's, that's that's suited to you and tailored towards towards you as a person. And I think London's not for everyone. You know, Imperial UCL, some of those schools are not for everyone. And you know, some people do much better suit are much better suited to like a campus based, maybe problem based learning or whatever style. So I think you know, it, for me, it always it always did make a difference in my mind. I think I think you've just got to find somewhere that that you're suited to. But I but I um. But I do think it matter, matters what kind of experience you're getting in medical school. And I think the hospitals that we rotate in London are amazing. You see so much pathology and, you know, there was so much variety. So I think, you know, I benefited and plus I love London. Like I love a big city. I, I don't think I could be in a really small place. So for, for me, it, it worked out perfectly. With all your experience, at what point did you think 
plastic surgery is what I want to go into and why did you kind of come to that conclusion what was it that drove you in that direction yeah that's a great question I I actually in my fifth year at Imperial we were able to choose a specialty choice module and at that time I we got given a whole list of things that we'd never experienced before and I saw cleft and craniofacial surgery and I was like wow this is this sounds amazing. Like, what is this? I don't even know anything about it. I know what a cleft lip is, but I don't really know anything more. And so, you know, I, I went along to Chelsea and Westminster and there was a surgeon called Mr. Niall Kirkpatrick who's still around in London practicing. But, you know, he, he became a really great mentor to me in medical school. He inspired me just because he was so welcoming. Um, the cases were incredible. Like just so, there was so much finesse. I'd never seen things like that before and so plastic surgery was a world I'd never been exposed to until my fifth year and so during that time that was the that was the time where I really thought wow this is something that I I would definitely love to love to pursue I think the beauty of plastic surgery is that it covers every part of the body so I loved anatomy in medical school I think you have to love anatomy you have to you know you're operating on literally from head to toe on any part of the body reconstructing different parts and I think for me you know I, I love the variety that plastic surgery offers. You know, I think it, yes, there's finesse. Yes, there's some artistry and like design and seeing seeing the ability to see things in three three dimensions. But I, but I think it's one of the few surgical subspecialties that you can actually operate anywhere on the body. Um, and you're also the ones who come in sometimes at the end to, to really fill a defect that no one else could fill. And I just... I, lo I love it there's just involved you know for me it was something that kind of triggered my initial interest in, in the field okay so let's go back to mental health and burnout so we've spoken a little bit about it um with your experiences in America um how like did you experience any of that in like the UK or was it way way more relaxed and after having that experience in America did you come back and think this is so much easier. Yeah, you know, that, that's a really good question. I think it's such an important topic as well. I, in medical school, I never felt it. I mean, you always feel stressed in medical school to some degree with like finals, I think will probably, you know, I think it stresses everyone out. Um, but, and, and the end of your exams, but I think I never really felt that level of exhaustion until... I got to um, got into training. And I think actually, you know, the first couple of years I kind of just pushed through because even though, you know, you're doing the 110 hours a week, you're just, you're just going on adrenaline. You're just going on what you, you, you have to do, you know, kind of have to do and get through it. And I'm someone who I've never quit anything. Like I'm someone who, when, you know, I get an opportunity or I've decided I want to make this decision, I've just gone through with it, you know, regardless. And I think, that helped me, but it, but sometimes you're powering through. And there were definitely days in America where I thought, I'm not sure, is this for me? You know, like, is it worth, is it worth it? And um, I would, you know, I'd speak to my wife about it. I'd speak to my family about it. And I, I just say, I, I don't know whether, whether this is, whether it's generally something I want to keep going. Cause on those days, which were just brutal, I think yeah. you just have to sometimes reassess, but, what, what carried me through and what I try and, you know, and I do this on my social media pages, really provide people with the motivation that there, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And for me, I had to keep focusing on what my end goal was. And I can sit here and say, yeah, you know, I, 
I kind of, now I'm setting up my practice and this is everything I've always wanted to do and it is, but you have to go through some seriously tough days to get to this stage. And I think the, the time I really appreciated what I was going through that I was like, I felt the burnout was at the end of my training. Um, as I was leaving Seattle and, and coming back to the UK, I realized that I'm exhausted. I'm like emotionally and physically exhausted. And um, I, took, I took a little time out, not loads of time out, just a couple of months, but I took a couple of months out and, um, and then gave myself the time that I needed to like reassess and reevaluate. And, and it was like the first time I'd actually been able to think, you know, think about, where I see my life going, what I wanted to do. Genuinely, I think I lost a bit of passion for plastic surgery by the end of my training because I was almost jaded. I was like, is this really what I want? Like after all this, like you working with all these like toxic people and, and everything and you and you think, wow, is this, is this really like what, what I wanna do for my life? And so, you know, being brutally honest with you guys, um, I started looking for other jobs. I was like, can I do healthcare consultancy? Can I do what can I do? And I was like, man, I've, I've trained for like a decade and I'm, I'm a consultant, but I'm, I, I think, I think it was just because I was exhausted and I just needed that time to just regroup. And, and then I started at the Royal Marsden and as people, most people know around London, especially, you know, it's a top, one of the top in Europe for cancer, for cancer reconstruction. I, I've had some amazing colleagues um, there and so much support that I've never had before. Um, you know, people really cared about you. It wasn't like in America where I felt like no one cared. Um, people really cared about your well-being, And, you know, if you were sick or you had a family problem or anything in America, they wouldn't care. But here, I was just surrounded by colleagues who were just so amazing. And so, you know, I think I think I saw a big, a big difference in the, not just the work hours, because my work hours were like probably less than half of what I was doing in America, around half, yeah, around half or less than half. But it was just the support as well. And I think the, the overall package made me realize that, you know, I'm a lot happier here. And that was when I made the decision to stay in the UK for good and not go back to the States, which wasn't my original plan. Yeah. Um, did you feel like at any point, like the amount of hours you were doing and the amount of stress you were probably under, do you think that affected patient care at any point when you were doing your residency? You know, um, I was very kind of, Patients were always the number one priority and I never let myself or the way that I was feeling get in the way of that, whether it be in the operation or any of the ward care or anything else. So I don't, I never saw it. I don't, I never made a mistake like in, in, in theaters or anything that I, that I would say, you know, this is, this would, this was a, a point in time where patient care was impacted, but it happens to people, right? Like a lot of people go through a lot of, a lot of um, emotional trauma during these years. And I saw with my colleagues, I saw marriages fall apart. I saw, you know, um, a lot of people, you know, obviously needing to consult therapists or go through things or some people really coming to the point of quitting and, and announcing that they were going to quit. And then the, you know, the program saying, listen, you're so far into it. Are you sure you want to do this? But I saw, you know, a whole spectrum of emotions. And I think, you know, the problem as healthcare providers is that I don't think we put enough emphasis on mental health you know the impact at which these kind of jobs can take such a toll um so i guess you know i never i never thought it interrupted patient care but 
I think the unhealthy part of the way I was managing it was just that I wasn't really processing my reality. I was kind of just almost acting robotically and just getting through each day and not thinking about all the other stuff until when I came to the end. And I think that's why I felt so drained at the end because it was probably the first time I'd actually let myself process what I'd just been through for six years, you know? Yeah, um, I feel like it's like when you're in that situation, something has to take like a sacrifice, like with, whether it's your own mental health or it's patient care, or it's your family, like something has to like be sacrificed for you to succeed in other areas. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is, you You have to give up on, on a lot. I gave up on all my hobbies. I gave up on my family time. I gave up seeing friends. I couldn't fly back for my best friend's funeral in the UK because my, my program wouldn't let me in the US. And um, I had to miss, you know, weddings and funerals and everything. And I think those kind of things you, you just have to, if you process the reality of what the situation is, it's hard. And, and, and this isn't a healthy way to deal with it. And this is, I think anyone listening to this podcast should, should really, you know, it, 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 this isn't the right way to do it because this is the process of avoidance. And, you know, any, any person who knows about psychology will tell you that's not a healthy way to, to deal with your reality. And, um, but for me, it was the way that I got through everything and, and got through it well and but but obviously it takes its toll yeah so that's really interesting but do you think that I mean the sacrifice of say your own mental health or um that whether you can't see your family enough on the weekends or whether you can't go to things that mean a lot to you like at different stages in your life do you think that's just a part of medicine and a part of that culture and also just how you deal with that work-life balance just to keep your own sanity. Yeah, you know, that's, that is, you touched on some important points. I think, you know, you have to find, you have to try and find some balance that works for you. And I hope that the generations of surgeons, like, you know, in, in, in our generation, you know, and as a consultant now, I can, I can say that, you know, there are, I, I'm really trying to be as as understanding as possible for anyone working working with me, um, but but I didn't have that, and you know a lot of us haven't had men, a lot of me close mentors, and the reason why is because especially a field like surgery, there's you know there's kind of if they got beaten down, if the bosses got beaten down, then they want to beat down on you because that's what they went through and they think that's right. I'm hoping there is a culture shift, and I'm trying to you know bring that to light because I think it's important that we start changing that and, and, and being supportive to our colleagues, whether they be junior or on our level or senior, it doesn't matter. I think we have to start, and, and as early as medical school, right? Like you've got to, there are periods of time where, which is always gonna be stressful. And yes, we, we decided to go into medicine, which is not an easy career. It's constant, you're constantly learning, you're constantly evolving. And there is like that, that expectation that, that is on you to in order to perform at a certain level for to provide the best care for your patient definitely agree with that but you've also got to make time to take care of yourself because if you can't take care of yourself then you can't take care of others very well and you know and you always you know you I always use the analogy like if somebody's drowning you've got to make sure that you don't just jump in head first without thinking about it before you go in because then you're both you're both you're both passed away, right? You're both drowned. And so I think you've got to help yourself and take care of yourself too. I think that is something that we all as healthcare providers need to make a priority, which I don't think a lot of us have historically. I think a lot of us have just focused on, 
we've got to get through this. We've got to do what's right for our patients and we've got to be the best doctors we can be. But to be the best doctor and the best person you can be is to also give yourself the time and, and, and self-love, which I don't think a lot of us do enough. What are the kind of physical changes that you make to your own life and your own lifestyle to enforce that, to actually say, okay, I need this time to take out for myself or to spend time with my family? What do you actually do to kind of implement that balance? Yeah, I, I've changed a lot in the last year and a half since I've been back in the UK because I've actually, you know, I've had time to reflect and think about the kind of person I, I was I was during training um, and that whole like avoiding your your true reality. I think I've, I've changed that aspect of my life a lot. Um, I, I stopped drinking um, nearly a year ago now for good. I made the decision. I think alcohol for me was like always something I really enjoyed, not something that I did excessively because you can't as a surgeon, but I think when you're stressed and you have the one day off on a weekend, you know, and you're out with friends, especially this was more applicable to me during training. You know, you just, you, you get to that point where it doesn't help your level of stress. It doesn't help you feel better. Um, so I, so I made that decision. I think other things that I've, I've physically changed, I try and bring, bring like an element of mindfulness in every day, even just for five minutes to take time away and listen to something on, on a podcast or something just to, just to take yourself, you know, uh, and give yourself just even a few minutes a day. Um, if I have time, especially during lockdown where my schedule has been a bit more flexible, I've tried to do a daily walk and take time um, with my family and just take time to just think and, and get some clarity. Um, and I think other things to do, to do for, for, for people are just use support networks, right? Use your support system, friends, family, someone you're close to that you trust to kind of talk about the, the issues that you're going through. And for people who don't have that, there's always like therapy or counselors or people who can like help kind of help help you in, in moments and that, you know, they don't judge you. So I think there's always there's different avenues, but I think some form of of uh, communication and support networks are really, really important. Yeah. Did your family um, travel with you to the US when you decided to go for your residency? No, they didn't. So my brother lived out um, in California. And funny enough, I ended up in on the East Coast for the first two years. So I was like a nine hour flight away from him. So it wasn't exactly close. But no, they didn't. My parents and my other brother stayed back in the UK. Um, I met my wife out in America. So she, um, she was there to really support me through a lot of the tough times. Um, and I think it's really helpful to have a very understanding partner um, going through all of this, especially if they're not in medicine, which she wasn't, um, just to be able to understand what you have to go through and the sacrifice that you have to make, which is essentially not spending time with one another for years, you know? Um, but so I didn't, I didn't have um, immediate family uh, besides, besides obviously once I met my wife. And so with all of your experiences in the US, like good and bad, if you were talking to a medical student, well, I guess you are, but um, would you recommend um, anyone to think about doing your USMLE straight out, out of med school? Or would you say just stay in the UK and do a training program here where it's a lot less stressful? Yeah, you know, I think I think there's, there's pluses and minuses to both systems. I wouldn't tell people not to do it. I mean, 
you know, obviously my, my environment is specific to the environment that I experience is specific often to like different programs and different institutions and who your mentors are and who the people you're working with are. I think, um, it is, it is challenging and it is very hostile dependent. However, generally speaking, and I've trained at like three different institutions in the U S it is a lot more of a brutal system. I think the expectations on you, the work hours, the work-life balance, all of that, that applies pretty much no matter where you go. Um, and so I think that anyone who is thinking about America, I would say, if, if, if it's something you, you want to do and you've got a really good reason to do it, like, you you know, there's a reason why you want to be out in America or, or you just, you want the challenge like I did and just wanted to like see what it was like. And then I would say, go ahead, you know, you should do it and go in, go in all guns blazing, like really go for it, make your application strong. But, you know, the, the UK system, you still get really good training. Your work-life balance is better. It is over a longer period of time. And so people always say to me, oh, but you did your training in six years and you became a consultant. Yeah, I did. But it's six years of, you know, 110 hours a week and like 72 to 100 hours on call straight. Like that, I, I don't know what, there, there's no balance. So like, it depends on what your priority are, priorities are and what you want. I think anyone kind of looking for a family or women who are, looking to you know have families eventually during their training it's very difficult in america there, there was no paternity or maternity leave in my program you had to use your three weeks of holiday time a year for your paternity or maternity leave which is mad and if you and if, yeah it's, it's ridiculous and then if if you wanted to have extra time you would have to add that on to the end of your training so it was it was a a, a brutal place uh, and they so i think you know i guess it's like a long-winded answer but I would say if you have good, good enough reasons and it's something that you really want to do, then there should be nothing stopping you. And people always told me that, you know, you want to be plastic surgeon in America, that's impossible to do. And, you know, I'm here to say like, nothing's impossible. I think if you work hard, you're determined and you have enough drive, you can achieve anything you want to achieve. The question is how badly do you want to and know what you're giving up and what the sacrifices are that you're going to have to make along that journey. And that's why I'm trying to be as transparent as possible because I never had anyone tell me this before I went to America. I had no idea. Would it have changed my mind if somebody had said, yeah, you're going to be doing this, this, and this? I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to answer that. I don't have regrets. There were a lot of great experiences. I felt I was a very, I felt very comfortable coming out of training. And some people in the UK who I've worked with in the NHS system, at the same level, haven't sometimes always had as much experience. I think it takes a little bit longer to feel as confident because sometimes they don't get the independence that they need um, to be able to do some of these complex reconstructions independently as soon as they finish training. Um, but they all get there in the end and they all become yeah. great surgeons. And I've worked with some incredible, incredibly gifted surgeons at the Royal Marsden over the last year and a half. So um, I, I think that you, you'll, you'll, you'll end up reaching your own goal. And I think it's just a matter of your own priorities and, and, and goals. Yeah, I don't think in terms of like decision-making, I don't think people should be scared to make hard decisions for things they know are going to be difficult, but mm -hmm. it's about making that logical decision and saying like, what are the benefits? What are the like repercussions of what I'm about to do? And if they, like, if you look at it in a logical way, if the benefits outweigh like the kind of bad things about what you're going to do, then it's kind of an informed decision, I guess. Yeah, completely yeah. agree. So plastic surgery is absolutely massive in um, the USA. 
how do you think the rise of social media and everything that you see online has impacted plastic surgery but also your particular work like how do you think that it's found its way through to what you're now doing today yeah you know social media has taken off in a big way and in america it's actually even bigger than it is in the uk i think only now uk plastic surgeons are really in the last couple of years are really starting to voice their thoughts and 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 having these big presences on, on instagram and other social media platforms but in america it's been pretty big for quite some time especially amongst people in private practice because it's a way of get, getting business and getting patients through the door um you know i i actually started social media quite early like around mid mid training um and i started doing a lot of things tailored completely towards training and suturing and and teaching and things and you know it picked up it picked up really really well and i think it's important for me personally it's important to to not only devote my 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 platform to to my business but also to teaching as well um i think the rise of social media is is pretty big i think the issue i see with some people is there's they post a, some people post a lot of in this in the surgery you know type videos and and it brings awareness to a lot of things but i think some people take it a little bit too far on instagram and some other platforms um you know i think the aesthetic industry in general is is a difficult one in the uk um you know because really anyone can do aesthetics um which i'm trying to bring a lot more awareness to now in the media because as a plastic surgeon doing aesthetics it's very different to a beautician doing aesthetics and and if you see people they're able to do a weekend course and then go and start doing injectables but and i can tell you from from personal experience of doing things like tear troughs and doing a lot of like injectables around eyelids and the nose there's a there's a lot of finesse to this and i've done you know over 3000 surgeries on the face and i can tell you that when it comes to anatomy and placement of some of these products it's i mean it's just so variable and i'm seeing so many complications coming in now into my clinic from other providers because they just don't know the anatomy they've never had experience with that but the problem with social media in that way is that people who have big social media presences are often ones that the patients are going to without really understanding where these people have trained or the lack of training sometimes so i think it's a is an interesting world i think i'm really trying to be more transparent and bring more awareness to to this because i think it it is sometimes a little bit scary in my opinion um so especially when it comes to like the aesthetic side of of you know plastic surgery and the way that things are going so um because everyone terms themselves aesthetic providers and no one's really differentiating between someone who hasn't had any experience with anatomy or surgeries and then someone like me who has done a lot of it and um so yeah it's a it's a it's a pretty terrifying world out there Do you think in any way like plastic surgery or I guess not all of your work is aesthetic like you do a lot of other important surgeries that help people's quality of lives yeah. but some of your work I guess is um do you think that the rise in plastic surgery especially in kind of like influencers or people who have a lot of like public like spotlight does that um impact the amount of like body dysmorphia there is in like particularly like young people and how like as in your role as a plastic surgeon do you feel any responsibility or like 
what is your view? What is your take on it? Yeah, no, that that is definitely true. I think the role of social, you know, the kind of role of social media and especially with influencers, it often depends on what content they're posting and the kind of pictures that they're posting. I think, you know, if you're posting constantly about that you need to be looking a certain way and this is, you know, these are the, all the things wrong with somebody and this is all the things that you should change. I think that is something that would make people feel, you know, it would probably bring people's insecurities out. Of course it would do. Um, you know, I think it, yeah, I think it really depends on the individual. Um, for me personally, the way I, I view it is I, I, I post a lot of, um, a lot of really all, all my results on every spectrum. I mean, I see a lot, a lot of, people who have never had um, any procedures done before, I would say 90% because I'm based out, out in Surrey and Berkshire, I would say over 90% of my patients have never had any procedures done before. So they come in and they're really nervous and they've never, you know, they, they've never trusted anyone before, which I, I feel really honored about, but I'm also giving a very realistic picture of like what, what should be achieved. I'm giving very natural results. I think there are a lot of people out there who are not giving natural results, who are trying to make people, you know, have these huge lips and huge cheeks. And I mean, I just, it's not something that ethically and like morally, that's how I trained or how I think. And so I, I think it's very variable on the provider, but I think body dysmorphia is a real thing, you know, like, of course it is that if you see the content of some of the, some of the things that people are posting, you know, it, it isn't, that isn't representing the, the kind of the normal patient population. But again, it depends on who they're catering to. Some of these people yeah. in London are catering to a specific crowd in London and around and globally who who want that particular look. So, mm -hmm. but but again, it's going obviously going to stimulate um, you know different insecurities in different individuals. Yeah, um, I guess. Do you think that there's like a kind of a psychological aspect to your career um, and your job? Because I watched like a lot of watched and. Um, I see that in a lot of cases, part of the surgeon's job is to assess the patient, not only like physically, but assess what they want and why they want it and whether implementing that change is actually going to make a positive impact on their mental health or is going to worsen it. And they're just going to keep getting surgeries. Yeah, yeah that's a great, that's a, that you, you touched on really the, the essence of private practice in plastic surgery. I think for me during my consultation, I really spend a lot of time talking to patients about what their reasons are for doing something and why they want to do it. You know, I've got, as I kind of mentioned my patient population, I have a very like a really great patient population in this out in the suburbs, which, which can be different, but there are always going to be people who are doing things sometimes for the wrong reasons or not really understanding why they're doing something. I think our roles as plastic surgeons and doctors in general, I think is to, is to really get, to get to be able to understand the patient, to be able to spend the time to get to know them and get to know why they're doing something. I think there are certain red flags that you always look out for. Um, you know, if someone's doing something for like, you know, a partner and being kind of coerced into doing something, or there are other reasons why people are doing things. And sometimes that kind of body dysmorphic disorder does play into it, where they're seeing something which you're not, and you have to make kind of be as delicate as you, as you need to be in the consultation to build their trust, but also to sh show them that if you actually, from what I'm seeing, I don't see, I don't see what you're seeing. And you have to be able to explain that in a way that doesn't make them feel like they're, they're saying something, you know, and, and feeling bad about what they said, 
but you have to kind of make them kind of see that, you know, that this isn't the reality. And I think those are the patients that you need to be very careful about what you're doing and, and, and what kind of procedures, because those are the ones where, you know, you don't want, you don't really want to be doing, you know, certain, certain procedures, um, not only because they don't need it, but also because then you, you may not meet their expectations or you may give them something different and then it, and it could snowball. So, um, I'm very, very, um, transparent and very honest with patients and I devote the time needed taken, um, to really be able to explore their, their, their understanding and, and why they're doing things. And I think that's very important, um, in plastic surgery to do. So where do you see your clinic in five years, for example? Like, what are your kind of plans for your clinic? Because obviously it's an incredible endeavour to start up something like that and you must have things that you're kind of manifesting for it or that you aim to reach. What are they for you? Like, what are your personal kind of goals for the next five years? Yeah, you know, that that's it's always something that you're always const I'm constantly thinking about. I'm currently renting... Um, two clinics, one in Windsor and one in down in Surrey. Um, I think my eventual goal will be to have my own independent um, facility uh, and, um, and really to be able to do things exactly the way I wanna do it. I think there's limitations to what you can do in a rented facility. Um, and I think the other thing is as well as just evolving different types of procedures, obviously building on the clinic teams, building on the marketing and kind of and I really want to continue to spread the awareness of going to a well-experienced provider. Um, I think that's something that is, as we've talked about already, is something that is so important in this, in this industry, especially in aesthetics. Um, I do things as well for like functional, not just aesthetics. So, you know, that's something that I'll always continue, um, whether it be skin cancer or whether it be certain problems that people have that I can help them with. Um, that's more of a functional reason but from the aesthetic standpoint that will always kind of be my probably my predominant focus in private practice just because of the nature of private practice um, but eventually yeah I'd love I love I'd love to have at least one or more more than one clinic with um with a kind of a well-oiled machine and having almost like um, different types of um, different types of providers within one uh, facility that sounds like a great goal um, and very exciting. Um, what about plastic surgery in general? Where do you see like the future of plastics in say like five or 10 years? Yeah, I, you know, the one thing about plastic surgery is no matter what technology that gets designed or built within the world of surgery, plastic surgeons really use their hands a lot and that will probably never change. Um, you know, they've trialed robots and certain technology within plastic surgery itself. But, you know, the way that we reconstruct things, it can't be done by a machine because we're constantly having to like adjust certain things to reconstruct defects and things. And that's what I love about it actually. Like the robotic technology and some of the technology within surgery and medicine is pretty cool. But um, the one thing I do love is that we like use our hands for everything because we have to, and, and I kind of like that. Um, where I see plastic surgery, I mean, the, the, I think regarding, you know, the reconstructive world, the, the reconstructions and the microvascular surgeries are always evolving. That is some technology that we do use because um, obviously a lot of our big reconstructions are done often with a microscope. And so I think 
there are certain ways in which those surgeries are being made more efficient and and um and the efficiency you know that that kind of efficiency and uh, and understanding is is being constantly evolved um in the aesthetics world you know i think that plastic surgeons will always have a role to play i think as the role of you know, as you guys have talked about social media, I think the expectations now of a lot of people in society are, um, you know, people care a lot more about the, their appearance. And now, you know, we're all, always on Zoom meetings where our face is like right up at the camera. And I think people do um, care about certain things. And the technology with a lot of products um, is developing a lot in the world of aesthetics and injectables. And the products that I'm using are very naturally based. You know, they're great quality products. and that's not what everyone is using, but um, it's something that's that's kind of making people think, wow, I actually never knew that, that if I had this done, it's only made up of like antioxidants, hyaluronic acid, vitamins, minerals, you know, like there are certain things that people weren't really aware that like initially people thought, oh, I'm putting like cement in my face. But the, I think the world of aesthetics is also evolving with not only non-surgical, but, but surgical too. So, you know, I think the field of plastic surgery will always be there because I think there's always a need for it. Um, I think the variety is will always be there. Um, so it, it's an exciting, it's an exciting field to be in for sure. Perfect. So I think we'll probably round it up there just because I feel like we've spoken about so many fascinating things. Um, and yeah, it was like absolute pleasure to have you on our podcast and to be able to speak to you today and just get an insight into your world, into your life and hear about it really. Yeah, no, I just want to thank you guys for having me on. You know, it really is an honor to be to be involved with a lot of UCL uh, teaching um, events recently and, and, and some coming up as well. And, you know, you guys, I think you guys are doing a really great job about highlighting some some very important issues and, and really providing people with with a resource that I never had as a as a medical student. So I just want to you know congratulate you guys for doing a great job and, and really thank you so much for the honor of, of inviting me on today. Thank you. And um, for anyone listening, Dr. Sony does do a lot of events with um, the Surgical Society, which we really, really appreciate. He gives a great insight to a lot of different medical students. And um, please like, do look out on our social media platforms for more events with him, hopefully in the future. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.